The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn to John chapter 1. We're going to use part of the text there this evening for our lesson in a text we recently studied as we began the study of the Gospel of John in our Wednesday night Bible class. In John chapter 1, we might remember the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus as he points him out as the Son of God and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed him out to a couple of his disciples, and those two disciples went and followed Jesus. And then they came and found another and told him about the Christ. It's in verse 43 where a man named Philip is called by Jesus. And then Philip goes to a man named Nathaniel. And it's what Jesus says about Nathaniel, especially, that I want to consider this evening. In verse 43 of John chapter 1, John records, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. Especially notice what Jesus observed of Nathanael in obviously a miraculous fashion, never having met the man. He knew the hearts of all people, as we see at the end of chapter 2. He called him an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. An Israelite indeed. He was certainly an Israelite after the flesh, but Jesus says, basically, you are truly an Israelite. And we can come to the understanding of that by many places in the New Testament. One of them that comes to mind is Romans 9 and verse 6, where the Apostle Paul writes, It is not that the word of God is taken of no effect in regard to the promises to his nation Israel, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he goes on to demonstrate, And Isaac your seed shall be called. And so throughout history, God has made choices, not because there was necessarily anything inherent within a man, but because it is God's choice. And what Paul is trying to show in Romans 9 is that the children of the promise, the true Israel of God, are those who accepted the Christ of the Messianic promises. And so true Israel involves an inward fashion. In Romans, the second chapter, in verse 28, we see a little bit more detail about this when Paul described it this way. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The majority of Jews in Jesus' time would fall under the category of not being of Israel truly, of not being circumcised in the heart, and that's why it had reached the point where Jesus would prophesy about an utter destruction like the world never has seen, which occurred in A.D. 70. 
They were a people as described by Isaiah in chapter 29 and verse 13 as drawing near with their mouths, honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were removed far from him and their fear toward me, Isaiah says, is taught by the commandment of men. They had adapted tradition and they had merely saw the form of the law and did not allow it to transform their inward man. We might remember in Micah 6 and verse 8, where God says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so they had fallen into this practice of living an immoral life and and living an idolatrous life, and then going to the altar with many sacrifices, thinking that that erased everything. They were merely an Israelite by birth. They didn't truly buy into the system that God had placed and the spirit of the law. And obviously, we're not under the old law, but I think there are things to learn from Nathaniel and Jesus' interaction here, especially what Jesus describes him as, and then some of the things that Nathaniel displays in his character. It's very true that under the New Testament, no one can be a part of that unless they have a true inward change. You can't be a member of God's family without having a spiritual transformation. We recently studied that in John chapter 3. It is the new birth, the birth of water and the spirit. It's not about the flesh. It's a spiritual transformation. However, sometimes those who are added to God's family forget about the things that put them into God's family. And they start to fade from those characteristics they possessed before and lose the qualities that are supposed to be descriptive of the divine family. And that's why the Bible is so clear about how we need to seek and, and, and investigate our inward man. Make sure that we are acting according to the faith and always be given to introspection to make sure that we are Christians indeed. Nathaniel was an Israelite indeed, and he was another Israelite indeed. And the characteristics he possessed as an Israelite indeed are why he followed Christ and became Christ's disciple. And so the same characteristics he possessed, I would suggest to you, would be possessed of those who are rightly called a Christian indeed. Are we merely a nominal Christian? Like some Jews were merely Jews by birth, nominal Jews, or are we truly living up to the name? Consider one of the things that was characteristic of Nathaniel, which led Jesus to call him an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. There in John 1 and verse 45, after Philip said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, this was Nathanael's response, a response of skepticism and doubt as to the claim Philip had just made. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip insisted, saying to him, Come and see. There's been some discussion as to what Nathaniel meant by this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And there are a couple of possibilities. Consider there in John the seventh chapter and verse 40, when Jesus, a little further on in his ministry, starting to provoke thought in the minds of men, was causing divisions in the crowd. Some believed in him, some did not believe in him. And some believed in him, but their faith was so shallow that as we see at the end of John 2, Jesus did not commit himself to them. That division is discussed in John 7 to an extent, beginning in verse 40, when it says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet, obviously a messianic reference, 
Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. The Jewish rulers had a similar dispute, and Nicodemus somewhat stood up for Jesus, saying, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered him with the same kind of logic. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Nazareth was a town in the region of Galilee. And it may have been that the Nathaniel just knew of the prophecy of the Christ being born of Bethlehem, of being from Bethlehem after the characteristic of David. And so it just couldn't be so that he was from Nazareth. And to an extent, Nathaniel and the others would be right. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he spent his childhood and was raised in Nazareth. And maybe there was just a confusion there, and it gave him reason to doubt. Some skepticism came from Nathaniel. Or maybe it was, as most seem to believe, that there was some bad reputation for the city of Nazareth. In his comments on the New Testament, Albert Barnes says, "...the character of the people of Nazareth was such that they were proverbially despised and contemned." To come from Nazareth, therefore, or to be a Nazarene was the same as to be despised or to be esteemed of low birth. I think that's especially what is spoken of in Matthew 2 and verse 23, when it says that Jesus came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Some believe that he shall be called a Nazarene is reference to a specific prophecy Um, coming from a Hebrew word which sounds similar to Nazarene, which speaks of him being of the root of Jesse and the offspring of David. Some would make a connection in other places. I think that this plays on the idea of Nazareth being despised and people from it. We all can come to a thought of a city we have in mind that is despised in our mind and in the minds of others. We, we would never want to go there. We would never want to be associated with it. And if we have to drive through that town, we're not really looking forward to it. And that was really the city of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Therefore, Nathaniel asked. You know, that would line up with the prophecies of Jesus being despised and rejected, having no former comeliness, Isaiah 53. Certainly, he was called a Nazarene because of his being rejected. But regardless of the reason, this is what I want to focus on. Nathaniel had doubt. He couldn't believe at that point in time that the Messiah could come from a place called Nazareth, whether it's because that doesn't line up with prophecy or it just doesn't seem like someone so important and so good can come from such a loathsome city. But you notice Philip said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. It was an invitation for him to erase his doubt. And where a lot of people might have just completely rejected the invitation, Nathaniel's an Israelite indeed, and he refused to yield to his doubt. And that led to faith. In verse 49, he proclaimed himself, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. We need to learn from Nathaniel. A Christian indeed refuses to yield to doubt. It's not that the Christian will never have some kind of doubt. That's illogical. That's unrealistic. There are going to be things that attempt to shake our faith and certainly things which test our faith. And doubts may arise, but the difference between a Christian indeed and one who is merely outwardly a Christian or a weak Christian is yielding to that doubt or refusing to yield to that doubt. 
Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. He who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And I think sometimes, while we know that's true, we may have doubts arise, whether very small and brief or heavy and long-lasting, that we've got to deal with. Maybe we come across some so-called evidence that a follower of the evolutionary theory lends to us. And for a second there, we wonder, is it true that God exists? And if that doubt arises, the thing that would make it sinful is if we followed that and lost our faith. But a Christian indeed may see that and, and see the skepticism from someone else, but refuse to have their faith shaken and understand that God is true. And we may have some doubts arise from time to time that shake our faith to a degree. If, if we're doing everything that the Lord says, but things just aren't panning out for us. Things, things are very difficult, even though I'm following the Lord, but we need to stand firm in our faith that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We don't, we don't yield to that doubt. You know, Abraham is a man of great faith who is chief among those who walk in faith and is given as that example as one who walked in faith throughout his life. But Abraham wasn't a perfect man. There were times of weakness throughout his life. The difference, though, is he never yielded to any doubts or temptations altogether where he lost his faith in totality. He was an Israelite indeed, if you will, even before the nation of Israel being the father of that nation. But we also need to understand where faith comes from. It comes from hearing the Word of God and then understand the nature of faith as we've been studying in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, which says we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that tells us something more, that if faith comes from God's Word and faith and knowledge of God's Word, therefore, has to be grown in, then there's going to be levels of our faith and therefore various struggles with doubt as we grow. A child in Christ or a babe in Christ, rather, is going to deal with some doubts that are a little heavier and and longer lasting perhaps than one who has been at it for some time and has solidified their faith and grown their faith. But here's the difference. The refusal to yield to that doubt. We have an example of doubt in the New Testament that is very helpful to us and is something we allude to often in Matthew 14 after the feeding of the 5,000. We remember that Jesus departed from the disciples and they were on a boat And there was a great tempest that came and Jesus came out to them on the water. And we remember the famous section of Scripture in this story about Peter's faith and then his faith failing. In Matthew 14 and verse 28, after the Lord had come out to them and they were were very shaken, wondering who that was, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. You see, it's not that Peter didn't have any faith at all. We could argue that he had more faith than the other disciples. He had faith enough, trust enough in Jesus to get out of the boat. But then he had some things which would have sparked doubt in his mind as he was on that water. He was walking on the water with Jesus and he yielded to that doubt and his faith shrunk and he sank. And so one who is a Christian indeed refuses to yield to that doubt. And and Jesus obviously lifted him up as he would do throughout his ministry. And eventually Peter would have 
a strength of faith that he would have never been able to comprehend earlier in that ministry. And so faith grows. In Mark, the ninth chapter, I think we see another example of doubt, but this time an utter refusal to yield to that doubt and really a plea that we should all have when doubts arise. In Mark 9, there was a man with a son who had a mute spirit. We might remember the context where the disciples failed to cast that spirit out because they had a lack of faith. Only these can be cast out through prayer and fasting, Jesus says, and he rebuked them for their little faith. Well, then Mark 9 and verse 21, Jesus asked the father of the boy who had a mute spirit, how long has this happened to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And notice what the father said. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He had a measure of faith, but he also had some seeds of doubt. But what he refused to do was yield to that doubt and turn away from Jesus as if Jesus could not help him. He acted on the faith he had and requested Jesus to help him to come to a greater belief. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's exactly what Jesus will do to us every time we have a doubt that arises. Is it worth it? Is heaven real? Will it be worth all the sacrifices that we have given to God? Is God real? Is he true? Because we'll never actually see him until the judgment day. But there's plenty of evidence and and, and maybe there's a seed of doubt that's planted by Satan in our heart. And what we've got to do if we're a Christian indeed is refuse to yield to that. Lord, help my unbelief. Search the scriptures. Give God a chance, if you will. The disciples similarly said in Luke 17 and verse 5, increase our faith to the Lord. You know, Satan is seeking to devour us, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, and we have to be sober and vigilant because he's walking about like that roaring lion in that way. And we've got to be vigilant as to the doubts he hurls our way. In Ephesians 6 and verse 16, with the armor of God, the apostle Paul mentions, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan will be constantly hurling doubts our ways. And what deflects those darts and quenches the fire is the shield of faith. That is our trust in God through his word. There have been too many young Christians who have allowed seeds of doubt to fester. They've yielded to that doubt. And instead of investigating the truth, they've investigated the skepticism and they've lost their faith entirely. If they had just taken up the word of God and read it and studied it and consulted those perhaps who are stronger in faith, they would have been saved from that apostasy. Sometimes we sing the song, Higher Ground. And I believe it's the second verse that says, My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. Christians don't dwell where doubts and fears arise and dismay. They get out of them. They don't yield to them. And so I think we see in Nathaniel an unwillingness to yield to his doubt. He investigated and he gained the true faith in Christ. And in that same vein of thought, he was a man who was an Israelite indeed because he desired truth. Philip told him, we have found the Messiah, essentially. We have found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about. And the one is this man whose name is Jesus, and he comes from 
Nazareth. And then when Philip said, come and see, Nathanael went and saw. Because he had some skepticism doesn't mean he was a hater of truth. His skepticism just pointed out that he had a misunderstanding or perhaps even a a prejudice concerning Nazareth and therefore this man, Jesus, who came from Nazareth. But what he didn't have is hate for the truth, and he was willing to see if it was truth. And if it was truth that the Christ did indeed come from Nazareth and was one who was raised in Nazareth, then he would have changed his original view to fit the truth. And we see that within the very text. He goes on to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is completely and utterly opposite of what you see throughout the New Testament with the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees. See, they had their understanding of the Christ and they were looking for him to come. But their understanding of the Christ was different than what the Christ, who is Jesus, taught concerning that great prophetic office. For instance, Jesus taught that the kingdom was spiritual, not physical. Jesus taught about his death. Jesus taught about a spiritual transformation instead of this hierarchy of Jewish flesh. And they didn't like that. They were afraid of losing their power within the synagogues. And so they rejected the Christ. They didn't love truth or else they would have changed to conform to the truth, much like Nathaniel did. Those who are Christians indeed have a love for truth, period. And in general, which means we're not talking about some specific truth. We're talking about truth in general. As Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if we love Jesus, we love what is true. And certainly it's the New Testament that is truth, but we love what is true, period. And so if we have this understanding of the New Testament or of a passage of Scripture or of a topic of discussion, and it's pointed out to us that we're wrong, a Christian indeed will not refuse to accept that, but they will change their lives because they love the truth. They want the truth to be in them. The psalmist says in Psalm 1 and verse 2 that the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. A Christian indeed is one who delights in the law of the Lord. This is much unlike Ahab as we see him in 1 Kings chapter 22. We remember the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Ahab was the king of Israel during this time in 1 Kings chapter 22. And Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. And Ahab asked Jehoshaphat if he would go with him to take Ramoth Gilead, which was rightfully his. And Jehoshaphat was willing to do this with Ahab, king of Israel, but he he wanted something to give him certainty that this was okay. He said, inquire of the Lord for me. In 1 Kings 22 and verse 5, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. And the king of Israel, Ahab, gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat knew something about these prophets, evidently, because he said in verse 7, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him, of the Lord? I want to know what the Lord has to say, not these false prophets. And notice the king of Israel's response to Jehoshaphat. He said, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But notice this. He said, I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. Bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, quickly. You see, Ahab did not have a love for the truth. 
what he did was sought false prophets who would tell him what he wanted to hear. And he was okay as long as he heard what he wanted to hear. That's why Micaiah was left on the back burner. But Jehoshaphat evidently was one who loved truth. I don't care what these false prophets say. I want to know what the Lord says. And that should be our attitude. I don't care what I've always believed or what I thought at this time, but but I want to know the truth. And it may be that what I always believed or what I thought at this time was true, but as I search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so, like Acts 17 and verse 11 says the Bereans did, I am always willing, whatever the case may be, to change so that the truth fits my life, where I fit the life of the truth, and not that I make up something for myself. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and it goes on to show the revelation of God furthermore and in more detail and the law of the Lord and how beneficial it is. And therefore, more to be desired are these things than gold, yea, the much fine gold, more than the honey and the honeycomb. And he gives a reason why these things are so desired and valuable. In Psalm 19 and verse 11, The psalmist writes, moreover, by them, that is the statutes, the judgments, the law of the Lord, moreover, by them, your servant is warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. He adds, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. That is the attitude of one who loves the truth. And it's the attitude of one who loves the truth, which will lead to the prayer daily, perhaps. Lord, if I'm mistaken, If I don't know that there's sin in my life, if I have committed sins of ignorant, ignorance, if I'm, if I'm erring in some way and I don't know it, please show me because I don't want to be lost. And so when it's providentially provided that our sins are unveiled, then the person who is a Christian indeed desiring truth will repent and return to the truth. Much unlike Israel, who in Jeremiah 5 and verse 30 are described in this way in the actions taken by the nation. Jeremiah 5.30, it says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. They love to have prophets prophesying to them falsely. In the next chapter of Jeremiah 6, in verse 16 We see what should be done when the Lord says, Stand in the ways and see, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But still they showed they didn't love the truth. They said, We will not walk in it. A Christian is not willing to settle for untruths. A Christian is not willing to settle for stories that are told. A Christian is not willing to settle for false prophecy. They love the truth. No matter how hard it may be for them to swallow or hear because it may completely contradict the way they're living. A Christian indeed is willing to hear the truth and accept the truth because he knows what the truth can do and only the truth can do. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, the apostle points out that scripture is given by inspiration of God. And and because it's from God leading us back to Remember 1 Kings 22, what Jehoshaphat wanted. I want to hear from the Lord. I don't want to hear from these false prophets. I want to hear words from the Lord, which is exactly what the scripture is. It's, it's inspired of God. God breathed. Only because it's from God is it profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And only that scripture inspired of God is able to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's at this juncture where the apostle Paul, by inspiration, goes into these instructions for the young evangelist Timothy. He says, I charge you, therefore, because scripture is inspired by God and only scripture is profitable. 
I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, it is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I think that that's the landscape that we see in the church all too often today, that men want to hear stories. They want to hear fables. They want to hear things that that satisfy their itching ears instead of the hard evidence of the gospel and the truth therein. Only then can a person be saved. And one who is a Christian indeed, like Nathaniel, who is an Israelite indeed, will have a desire and a love for the truth. And also playing off that, Nathaniel manifested that he had a malleable heart, a heart that could be shaped and molded, a heart that was not set in stone and stone itself, but but a person who was willing to change. There in John 1 and verse 47, when Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, Nathaniel then asked, How do you know me? And Jesus said this simple thing with his miraculous knowledge. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this was Nathaniel's reaction, which shows the fact of his malleable heart. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. All Jesus had to do was tell him where he was just a moment ago. Jesus was not there. And the implication that Nathaniel clearly saw is that this man has miraculous knowledge. And that small miracle in comparison to all the others that he would see, as Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? Because of that one small instance, Nathaniel was led to believe that, yes, something extremely good can come from Nazareth, that this man, Jesus, a carpenter's son, is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is opposite, again, of the majority of the Jews during his day. We might remember in Matthew 20 or 12 and verse 38, When they asked Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This was after, um, right after that Jesus had healed a demon-possessed man, cast that spirit out. And they said he does it by the spirit of Beelzebub. And he showed them the lack of logic in that, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so after Jesus rebukes them in that fashion and teaches very sound principles in that fashion, then they say, we want to see a sign. But you just saw a sign, just cast out a demon. And no one can do that except one who is from God or else God is is working against himself or Satan, that is, is working against himself. And so they see great miracles, demons cast out, people healed, John 11, Lazarus raised from the dead. And even though they see that miracle and cannot dispute it, they do not change. And it's not because of a lack of power in the miracle. It's not because of a lack of power in the teaching of Jesus. It's because their hearts are like stone. They're not malleable. You can't change them. In Acts, the fourth chapter, we see Peter and John healing a lame man. And things hadn't changed even after that miracle. And after the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, They said it was a notable miracle, but they still did not believe. Matthew 13, quoting from Isaiah, Jesus gives the reason that these people hear and don't understand and see and won't perceive because the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their hearts are hard 
Their hearts are set in their ways. They are obstinate and unwilling to change. And if a person is unwilling to change, even God can't change him. And it's not because God is impotent. It's because God has given us free will and he will not undermine that creative facet of man. In Ezekiel 36, in Ezekiel 36, we have a prophecy of the messianic kingdom, what God would do for his people and the people, therefore, that would be the citizens of the messianic kingdom. And it has a lot to do with their heart. In Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, it is prophesied by God that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This was at a period of time when they were obviously in Babylonian captivity and you had the Jews who had turned to idolatry and lost their ways and were not following God in the least bit. There was always a remnant, but the majority of Jews were hard-hearted. And God foresees a time when by His will, He would have the ultimate true Israel kingdom and the inhabitants of that kingdom would be given a heart of flesh. And all that does is it paints a picture for us between stone and flesh of something that's hard and something that's soft, something that's impenetrable and something that is penetrable, something that is malleable and something that you cannot fashion or shape. And this was not a miraculous thing. He's simply saying that spiritual Israel would be different than physical Israel and that in order for a citizen to be a part of that kingdom, God's word had to be written on his heart. A contemporary of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, in chapter 31, spoke of the new covenant, and this was the description of the new covenant in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, and we're familiar with it. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. He's saying the same thing, essentially, just in different language, using different words. It's not that he didn't want the people to have his word written on their hearts under the old covenant. It's just that because of the nature of the old covenant, covenant that you're born a Jew, a fleshly Jew, that person could be a Jew, an Israelite, but not necessarily be a Jew or an Israelite indeed, because the word of God is not written on his heart. But no one can be a part of this messianic kingdom unless God's word is written on their hearts. There's no person who is born a Christian. They have to be born again to be a Christian. It's a spiritual transformation. And so a Christian indeed can't be a part of the kingdom and a Christian unless he has a malleable heart and he can't continue to be a Christian indeed unless his heart continues to be malleable. In Jeremiah 18, there's an example of this with the Israelites when Jeremiah was told to go to a potter's house and what he saw is that there was a potter making something at the wheel in Jeremiah 18 and verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. And the Lord gives him the meaning of this. Can I not do with you as this potter? And he speaks about how he had promised them they'd be destroyed, but if they changed their ways. In other words, if they had malleable hearts and allowed God to change them into what he wanted them to be instead of being so stubborn then God would relent from the destruction. And it's the same thing with a nation that is subject to God and following His will. If they stop doing that and become hardened, 
then they will be destroyed. Are we not clay in the potter's hands? Well, some of us are rocks in the potter's hands. That is, those who aren't Christians indeed. We need to have malleable hearts. We don't need to deny the power of godliness, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, but rather submit to the power of the gospel, Romans 1, 16, and that's going to manifest itself and not being conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We receive God's word with meekness as one who has a malleable heart, and we're allowing God to mold us into what he wants us to be. We sing another song from time to time. Let him have his way with the the chorus says, his power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see t'was best for him to have his way with thee. The power of the gospel is only as powerful as the sincere and malleable heart is willing to submit to it. God gives us free will and if we choose not to serve him, then he'll let us not serve him. And along those lines, similarly, Nathaniel manifested that he had sincere faith because he had a malleable heart. He was willing to allow God to make him into what he was and his faith was therefore sincere. Notice he calls him an Israelite indeed, verse 47 of John 1. And he adds this as a qualifying statement, in whom is no deceit. What do you mean an Israelite indeed? Well, in whom is no deceit. Deceit is the Greek word dolos, and it means a bait and a snare, literally and primarily. But figuratively, it meant to be crafty and deceitful and one with guile. Art and Gingrich defines it as taking advantage through craft and underhanded methods, deceit, cunning, and treachery. And in regard to John 1 and verse 47, he mentions in whom there is nothing false. In other words, Nathaniel was sincere. He was true. He was one who was legitimate and not counterfeit. He did not put something forth as something that appeared to be so, but it really wasn't. He was truly an Israelite. He was truly a lover of God and a follower of God. I think there's two ways that we can have guile or deceit in our hearts and therefore be in danger of not being a Christian indeed. Maybe we have deceit or hypocrisy before God and others. That was characteristic of the Jews that we've been mentioning in Romans 2 and verse 21, Paul said, Therefore you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should steal, do you not steal? Or do you steal? Do you, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Similarly, in Matthew 23, Jesus instructed the people in his woes to the scribes and Pharisees, that to whatever they tell you to observe, that and serve and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. And so they had guile in their hearts. They weren't Israelites indeed. They were two-faced and hypocritical. James's audience is rebuked for the same thing, similar thing in James 4, when he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he tells them to cleanse their hands, their sinners, and purify their hearts, and he calls them double-minded. That's the opposite of what Nathaniel was. In him was no guile. He was who he said he was and showed himself to be. His heart was pure. He was not double-minded. But I think there's something else that we can struggle with and perhaps some are guilty of, and that's the deceit of self. In James 1, it speaks of that self-deceit when he says, 
And verse 22, where to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And he gives this picture. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. In other words, those Christians who study their Bible and they come to Bible class and they they come to worship and they go back into their lives and completely forget something that was said that would cause them to need to change in their life and they don't change, they are deceiving themselves. And they're not Christians indeed, at least not properly described. Some are not Christians indeed because they deceive themselves into thinking they can live a certain way and still get to heaven. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For you sows of the flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. But he who sows of the Spirit will be of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So the one who is trying to convince himself that he can live in the world and do what his worldly friends are doing and and be with those people of the world in their sinful activities and then come to church on Sunday or study their Bible later that night or pray to God later that night, show themselves not to be Christians indeed, but ones within whom is guile and deceit. And lastly, with regard to self-deception, there are some who try to deceive themselves into thinking that their sin won't affect them. And what they do is therefore refuse the blessedness of God's forgiveness. David spoke of this blessedness in Psalm 32 in verse 1. He said this about a man who transgressed. Blessed is he who transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And he adds this, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And he goes on to describe a man who had deceit within himself for a while. He kept it within himself. He didn't approach God and confess it. He didn't ask for forgiveness. And therefore, he wasn't blessed. But he was blessed when he confessed those things, brought them to God's attention, and therefore was forgiven of them. A Christian, indeed, will always, when he sins, go to God in prayer with a penitent heart of, of sincerity, asking for that forgiveness, having sincere faith. In First Timothy 1 and verse 5, We see that's the whole purpose of the commandment. It's love from a pure heart, good conscience, and Paul adds sincere faith. In Ephesians 6 and verse 24, he ends that epistle with grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. But he adds in sincerity. In other words, a Christian indeed is one who is fully invested in loving God by keeping his commandments. That is walking by faith. He's not holding anything back from God. He's not leading a double double life. He's not trying to convince himself against what God's word says. But he simply accepts the truth and he follows God in sincerity. There are other things perhaps that we could describe Nathaniel with. But I think that those four things certainly do justice to who Nathaniel was as an Israelite indeed. And if we're to be Christians indeed, then we will be those who possess such characteristics We want to offer an invitation to anyone who has not obeyed the gospel this evening so that you can be added to the body of Christ, having undergone a spiritual transformation and being born again of water and the Spirit through baptism for the remission of sins. If you have that need, we can assist you with it. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.